Hey, Shauna. Happy October. <laughs> hey, Lisa. How you doing? I am doing okay. I, I honestly cannot believe that it is October, but there you go. Yes, absolutely. It's that time. It's what, fourth quarter um, in the United States. It's when uh, we're wrapping up fiscal years and things at the end of September. So uh, yeah, we're supposed to be uh, going back inside with our sweaters and hoodies and whatnot, but we've been inside for a while now. So this is going to be interesting. It is going to be interesting. <laughs> so to uh, add to our level of interest, um, what are we going to talk about today? Ah, we're going to talk about the P word. Now, usually my friends say P is for podium, but today P is for privilege. I am excited to talk about that. <laughs> oh, yes. We're going to tear it apart and try to put it back together again, Lisa. <laughs> Fantastic. So join us after the break and we will dig right in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Okay, the P word. Yes. What have, what have you got for me, Shauna? Oh, well, you know, I started out this week putting together a course that I'm trying to prepare for December and stemming over into the spring semester. And one of the things that I was struck by was that how uh, insidious this P word is, the privileges. And I think that's what's so interesting about it is that it's so invisible to those who have it. Um, it's intangible to those who have it, but yet everyone around them who doesn't have it sees it. <laughs> and that's what makes it so frustrating. And it's even hard to explain to those who have it because privilege is, in fact, normal. And so I'm, I'm still wrestling with what to include in that course, what uh, examples would really illustrate the issue, but I think it's something that we need to talk about. What we're we're in the early episodes of Unfazed, and we haven't really unpacked the whole issue yet. So I think it's time. Yeah, I agree. And I think the word privilege gets thrown around a lot, and um, for folks who are new to this discussion, many might be confused or not understand what it means, or maybe they default to race and think it only means white privilege when actually it's much mm -hmm. more expensive than that. And so I think that this could be a helpful discussion um, to expand people's idea of what privilege is and who has it and what you can do about it. Um, I think I mentioned in the very first episode that we recorded our live launch that for me, specifically white privilege is not a term I'd heard of until I came to the United States. And I think the United Kingdom has come a long way since I left. And so I think there are discussions there that are much more prevalent now about it. Um, but conceptually, I had, I had no idea about that terminology. I kind of grasped what it meant, but it has been quite the education for me over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that, you know, privilege is contextual, right? You know, so it's not going to really play out um, the same ways anyway. You know, someone who, um, if you're basing it in a context that's based on color, for example, 
racism might be quite different in the United States than it is in the UK, than it is um, on the continent of Africa, than it is anywhere. Um, and so it's really not even comparing apples to apples. It's comparing apples to lots of things. And uh, it's up to us to kind of figure out what privilege looks like, how people are structured in a way that some people are held up while other people are held down, and what context makes that lasting, sustainable system exist in the first place. Like, how did we even get to this point of having certain levels of privilege that today folks may somewhat understand, but none of us walking were necessarily part of the initial infrastructure of privilege, especially in the United States? Mm. It's so embedded, isn't it? And I think that's what makes it so difficult to understand is like the air yes, that we breathe. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to mess up this um, analogy, if that is what it is, um, <laughs> about the fish, like the fish out of water, right? Fishes are, fi fishes are swimming in water, <laughs> but they don't know they're swimming in water because that is their surroundings, right? And then you take them out of right. water and then they can't breathe. Right. Um, and, but you put us in water, right? And that's not, that's not an environment that we naturally live in and we can't breathe in water. And so mm -hmm. being pushed out of that comfort zone, um, I think is akin to becoming aware of the ways that you have privilege. And then you start to think about it more readily, right? Because to your point, privilege is invisible to the folks who have it. Absolutely. Walking around with it, don't know that you have it. Um, one of the things that I try to do to really simplify the concept of privilege because it is hard to grasp um, something that you can't see or can't feel, but it's been there all along. Um, usually I use a visual that's, I kind of call it the rainbow wheel, if you will. Uh, but it was a visual that was created at Johns Hopkins university. And it has about 16, 18 different identities in this particular rainbow wheel. And when I looked at it for a while and I started thinking about my own personal identities and helping other people to understand all the layers to their multiple identities, that kind of laundry list of ways in which you would describe yourself. Even when I looked at that rainbow wheel, the areas that I regularly didn't have to think about were immediately points of privilege to me. Things that you literally don't have to think about on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, I don't have to think about for example, language, because I know that, especially here in the United States where I live, if I walk into any restaurant, I'm sure that I can order what I'd like to eat or what I want, um, knowing that I can communicate effectively with people there because I'm presuming that the people present will speak my language. Well, that's not the case for everyone. And so given that, now I think about things that I see. I was just looking at some of my son's emails that come through. Well, depending on where you live, you should probably be aware of the demographics of where you live. Even with something as simple as communications in a school system, do the communications reflect the people that are in your community? So if my area um, within my little district here is 30% white, 30% black, 30% Haitian, um, for example, then do we have anything that's uh, translated into French, for example? Do we have things that are translated into other languages? I can't read it because Shauna is only proficient in English. However, I'm really aware of the people who cannot read what I can. So what does that mean when we start to look at those areas that we don't have to consider on a regular basis and be considered of other folks without needing for it to be attached to who we are and our identities? Like, can we really have compassion 
for identities that are not privileged that don't connect with us personally. Your language comment actually just made me think about sport. Um, and you know how, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but at the Olympics, um, I feel like everything is announced in French and English. Um, it's, it's not just English. There's mm-hmm. definitely an additional mm-hmm. language that's used. And I don't know how useful right. it is globally for French or, or whatever other language it would be, but certainly right. the, the English language is privileged globally, right? Um, and so- For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about growing up, I uh, did have the opportunity to learn French or Spanish. And I did French for some time, but I dropped off because there's no need for Lisa to continue to learn French outside of maybe just her uh, interest in doing so because the rest of the world is kind of pushed into this English first um, perspective. And so mm-hmm. I, had, I had friends from mainland Europe, German friends, people from Spain, and they spoke English plus Spanish or German plus maybe like three additional languages, right? Because of the way that their countries are positioned globally and what that means in terms of kind of their linguistic acquisition. And I think that's really fascinating. And then I think about triathlon here or sport generally, and everything's in English. The websites are in English, the applications to join, you know, sign up are in English, the email communications that come out are in English. So when we're thinking about inclusion in, um, triathlon and beyond, right? Your language point is, I hadn't actually considered that before, but that would be another way of casting the net wider, right? Would be ah, yeah, absolutely. translate your website, translate your emails. Um, yeah. You're, you're reminding me, oh my goodness. So you're reminding me of maybe I want to say three years ago or so. Um, I had the honor, in fact, of being at the Boston Marathon, and I was volunteering in the medical tents at the finish line. And one of the things that I loved about that system was that um, as folks that were checking people in, now let me be clear, I have no medical experience whatsoever, no medical skill sets whatsoever, other than a couple of superhero band-aids. That's about all I can do for you. And so I had the job of having a iPad and I would check people in by their bib number if they should need any type of uh, support or anything they might need. We check them in, we check them out so that we could track our runners. Well, in addition to those of us who were checking people in kind of as triage, we also had other people that had different iPads that were loaded with the various languages because you don't know what language an athlete is going to walk in with when they have, especially if they have a medical condition, if you're only an English speaker and you have a athlete coming in from Germany and they only know German, then how are they going to communicate that they have a severe health need or need some type of medical attention? And so that was one of the ways they really embedded the, the language skills into the entire production um, of the race. And I realized that obviously this is on the world stage. This is one of the world majors. So the resources are there to do that. But you're bringing up a great point about even as far as uh, local races or, you know, national races specifically, what kind of uh, inclusive language do we have? Or do we have even signage that's in more than just English, for example? There's lots of ways to embed that whole language piece of privilege. Um, into endurance sports specifically. I think that's a a great point that we hadn't talked about up until this point. 
Mm. And it's the invisibility of um, not feeling as an English speaker that we need to do anything else, right? And um, even I do think this is relevant for local communities because when I think about the state of Colorado, you know, there's um, numerous languages that are spoken in the state. And I actually think it, it might be Chinese um, that's the second biggest language spoken next to English. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, and so, and then to your point, contextually, communities um, are all made up of different people with different backgrounds and likely different language skills. Right. Yeah, and so yeah, when you're running yeah. a race locally, like what a great thing to do race director to think about how is my community made up? Like what are the th top three languages, um, you know, including English and is there a way that I could maybe provide marketing materials, the website, email, something in these additional languages, because that would also be a sign right? To communities where maybe English isn't their first language or individuals, oh, yeah. right? That this yeah. might be a place I could go. Absolutely. It, it automatically indicates who's welcome there. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that's awesome to really think about, you know, how can we do that differently? Um, something as simple as a website, you know, I think most races are held in areas where they have some type of higher education or even high schools where you could pay the high school French teacher to translate your race website into the language that you might need. So, you know, there's lots of ways to get it done, but I do think it's a great signifier that we're welcoming of everyone here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Lisa, I think we're, um, taking the thunder away from ourselves, but we, we need to figure out something to help um, those race producers and race directors of how can they do this in lots of different ways. This is just one example of many that I'm thinking of right now mm -hmm. um, there that we can indicate inclusion, you know, that people, that everyone belongs and everyone's welcome, but do it in a very active way rather than a very passive way. Mm -hmm. It's not okay to just say, oh, everyone's welcome and uh, everything's cookie cutter. <laughs> right. That, that doesn't work either. So how can we break out of that cookie cutter mode? Is, it's very important. And the language thing is just one of many ways to do it. Yeah. And I'm thinking like this, I, I hear that a lot. Well, everybody's welcome. They could do this if they wanted to. Right. And I think that in and of itself is representative of, of privilege in many beyond language. Right. But just this, well, I do it. So anyone else could without this mm. kind of acknowledgement of the ways in which my identities create access and opportunity for me to participate in triathlon or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I'm assuming therefore that my experience is universal and not giving a second thought to the fact that there are folks out there that don't have those advantages. Right. Um, yeah. that yeah, don't have sure. that access. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, so I have a question and maybe this is because I'm just newer to triathlon and the endurance sport world, but I am thinking about those races, for example, that have the proverbial eyeglass table when people come out of the swim, right? And so, you know, the language around that, because it's not just for eyeglasses, there's people that, you know, need medication at a certain time and they need to stop by there to get it. Or um, I've seen athletes that um, needed to put on a prosthesis after coming out of the swim. And so they stop at the quote unquote, eyeglass table to do it. You know, I think it's an interesting concept to think about literally from, from the point of clicking the button of registration to the finish line. How do you incorporate these, we talked about it before, micro allyship demonstrations that people are included. And it can happen throughout the entire process, but I think we really need to think through and kind of 
do a brain dump of all the different ways that we could be inclusive. Um, so, you know, I think with privilege and endurance sports, we have to think very, uh, is prismatic a word? Pr prismatically in some, it, we have to think through various prisms and different angles mm -hmm. around it. Yeah. Because usually we talk about privilege with just race. I mean, right. you said it, we normally do think of, think of it with just race, but the prism of all those different identities. Usually there's like a baseline of maybe 15 or 16 identities. So, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, um, sometimes political affiliation, body image, et cetera. But a lot of scholars are saying that over 50 different identity groups are out there that we've identified, even when it comes to dietary restrictions and needs, for example. So how can we think about racing and even training through all of those, those lenses like a prism um, in ways that help us to think um, from multiple perspectives of, pri of privilege because, you know, it's hard to think about what you don't have to think about on a daily basis. You're, you're mm -hmm. forcing yourself to get out of a comfort zone. Um, so if you can't see it, then others that live the experience every day can help us to kind of parse out what needs to change and adjust. And some of these changes are small, inexpensive, sometimes free changes that can be made to endurance sport that we just need to embrace and keep it top of mind. Mm -hmm. you're, you're eating dietary, dietary needs uh, made me think um, because, you know, at races, races are often sponsored by um, drink vendors or, you know, food providers. <laughs> That's like not the most articulate way to say it, but I'm thinking that, <laughs> um, you know, what thought goes into kind of the universality of those products, right? So if we're having uh, races, um, stop at aid stations, are we thinking about the fact that the products and the drinks that we have here are um, not likely to cause allergies, are um, going to be suitable for people who are celiac, right? So need the gluten-free piece. Um, you know, is there thought put into that? And it's kind of like a universal design, right? Like universal design is a Oh, yes. Concept yes. that's used in education, universal design for learning. How are we developing our curriculum and our schools and our educational facilities that are accessible to everyone, no matter their learning needs, right? Versus creating yeah, kind of yeah. like a little cutout for this person who needs this thing. And so it would be really cool to see races do that, right? To instead of having um, a, a kind of like a carve out for this one or two people, to actually embed that kind of universal design. And I think, you know, there's lots of ways that you could do that, but your, your um, dietary need um, made me think of that, that what, it, what thought goes into aid stations, what thought goes into the other products that are available um, and how could that be something that is a signifier of privilege, right? Like I, I don't need yeah. to think, I can drink this drink and eat this thing. I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I provide everyone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so to think about for those that are relatively new to universal design, um, it's something that I've thought about a lot. Lisa and I are both in education. So obviously we think about it quite a bit, but to give you the, the, easiest version to think of this universal design of course reminds me a lot about my sons um, I have a, a, my oldest son who was recently diagnosed as ADHD but even before that um, we learned a lot about universal design in his classes especially in pre-k and basically it kind of goes like this where 
Um, my youngest son, when he was in kindergarten, he had a sight word list, which basically was a list of 10 words that he was learning how to spell, learning how to put into a sentence. Um, and so there were lots of different ways to teach those 10 words. So they would get that one worksheet with the list of 10 words on it, but they would also play old school wooden scrabble to learn how to spell those words. So that's a second mode of learning. Then they would go online and play online Scrabble. That's a third form of, um, of interacting with the content. And then they would have Legos and each Lego had a letter on the side of the Lego so they could use the Legos as manipulatives to build out the word again. So in other words, there were at least four or five different ways to interact with the very same information. S originally pre kind of pre-universal design, doing any of those additional methods was seen as, oh, we're doing something special for those one or two kids where they're having challenges with learning. Now, everyone gets all of the modes because we find that it does help those students that may have some type of different learning ability, but it also helps the students that don't have any learning challenges because it simply reinforces what they need to know anyway. So in other words, it helps everybody in the room rather than um, alienating or making anyone special. All of that to say, in endurance sports and even with, you know, fueling and food and so forth, I would imagine that there are probably some resources that, for example, vegans may uh, take in that all of us, it wouldn't hurt all of us to actually eat and enjoy. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about different ways that, hey, I think we're onto something. How to create a universally designed race. How do we design mm -hmm. that from start to finish? Yeah, and also, you know, it's very applicable to folks with disabilities, um, whatever those disabilities may be, right? But, you know, if an able, if a temporarily able-bodied person is the race director and they're creating a race based on the premise that everyone can walk or run to a certain place or can, can see, um, you know, can see their bike in transition or doesn't have any kind of visual impairment or, uh, you know, color change issues, then um, it's going to exclude people who would otherwise want to participate, right? And so that's the privilege, right? That's the privilege of I don't have to think about the fact that a glasses table might be helpful because I don't wear glasses, right? Like I don't right, have to think about the right. fact that a person who mm -hmm. needs glasses to see is going to need them to run into transition to find their bike and then to ride their bike. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I really think that I thinking of taking that concept, stealing it from education could also do a lot to help uncover some of these privileges and these assumptions that we make about what is the race and training experience like. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and I think we do make grand leaping assumptions that it's one way for everyone. You know, we, we've talked about that at, at uh, Outspoken specifically around, you know, assuming that, you know, fueling a small man is equal to fueling a woman. We, we've talked about that. No, that doesn't work for us. Um, and so, you know, given that, how are we kind of extending some of that privilege into those cookie cutter responses in racing? So I think there are some things to consider there. Um, Another thing that, that I think uh, about as well is that I'm always concerned about 
how defensive people get even when they hear the P word, right? Like we can't even get into a conversation about it because people are pissed off that you even brought up the topic. Mm -hmm, and so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I try to get away from, and I don't have the right answers to any of this, but it's kind of like calling someone to their face a racist, like, oh, you have privilege. And that's not at all the approach that I really want. I more want to talk about systems. Um, I think there are very few people that are proudly racist. Uh, they are there. Don't get it twisted. They are there. But I think the lion's share of folks are racist in that they've gotten so used to the P word in their lives or privileged or we don't even have to pick on race. So I don't want to just stay there. But they've gotten so used to privilege, that invisible privilege being so prevalent in their lives as a system that it it almost goes back to last week about the matrix that we don't know is there. And so how do we get to a place where we're less defensive about even talking about the topic in any setting, whether it's endurance sport, whether it's in our professions, it's almost like it's, it's almost like call out culture, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like, Oh, you have privilege. And then somebody walks away. It's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. That's not what I would prefer. <laughs> I would prefer, Hey, there's some privilege going on here. Can we have a conversation about it so that the person can discover how it's playing out in their daily lives, how it's playing out in micro ways, macro ways, and how can we start to dismantle it? But I think, you know, the defensiveness shuts down the work that we need to do around acknowledging privilege so that we can then do something about it. So, you know, how do we put down that defensive piece? Mm, I, I don't have a good answer to, <laughs> to that question, but I'm thinking that in the United States context, at least, I think it's really tied to this notion of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you know the founding mm. principles of the mm -hmm. united states are individualism liberalism uh you know free market you can make it if you try so if therefore if you don't make it you can't be trying hard enough right it's not a, it's not a systems analysis it's very individualized and so we are ingrained yeah. with that yeah. that yeah. ideology right it's everywhere um and so when we try to have a conversation about the unearned benefits a person might have accrued based on their participation in this system that privi mm -hmm. privileges whiteness, maleness, able-bodiedness, heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, it's experienced as an individualized attack versus I am oh. part of this larger system, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's because we're so connected to this idea that if I just try hard enough, this is the country where dreams come true, right? I can right, pull myself right. up by my bootstraps because right. to um, admit that that's actually not a reality, then you have to open your eyes to this broader systemic um, multi-layered discrimination that's happening. And that's not something that I think people want to face readily. And so then it just gets reduced yeah. to this, you're attacking me individually, right? Like I definitely yeah. hear white people that say, well, I don't feel entitled. I don't feel privileged. I grew up poor. I have a disability, right? And yeah, so you absolutely were disadvantaged by your socioeconomic status and by your disability, but you were not disadvantaged by your race. And those right. things right. work together, right? Like right. it's, it's, you know, it is the matrix. It, and Patricia Hill, <laughs> Patricia Hill Collins, who's a black feminist scholar, she talks about the matrix of domination, right? And mm -hmm. then we've got Kimberly Crenshaw and the inter intersectional theory, right? We all sit at that intersection. Um, and so you can experience privilege on the one hand and you can experience oppression on the other. They do not cancel each other out, 
but those experiences sit in these larger systems. Yeah, absolutely. They sit in the system. And I, I think, you know, we revert to this, it's a stall tactic, it's a diversion tactic that I am so uncomfortable with that one word that I can't get to the larger conversation. And so therefore, I'm going to stay in my comfort zone, which is the actual matrix. I'm going to stay in that comfort zone and I'm not going to come out. Why? Because I don't have to. That, that's inherently the definition of privilege. I don't have to step out of my comfort zone because I have an entire system built around my comfort um, to feed into my comfort, in fact. And so, you know, I, I think uh, the systems are what we need to kind of consider. Um, and I do think that, you know, when we start to understand the umbrella of privilege, I think um, folks will stop feeling uh, relatively targeted when they hear the word privilege because the majority of folks actually carry it in some dimension of an identity of some sort. Um, I remember my uh, one of my master's students many years ago um, who walked in in my door and that particular night we were talking about uh, multiple identities and intersectionality and so forth and she had a fantastic argument as to why she was not privileged. <laughs> And I said, wait a minute, you attend XYZ University, which is a private institution and extremely expensive. The moment your big toe crossed the door of acceptance into this institution, you were already privileged because you had a level of access. And so it's a level of access that not everyone has. And so once we, you know, do that introspection of figuring out where our privileges lie, then we can do some really good work, really deep work. And so I don't think that, you know, unfortunately, um, sometimes I wish it were the case, but I wish I could run off into triathlon and hide from um, oppression. I wish I could run off into triathlon, which I love, and hide from privilege. But I can't. It, none of us can. It follows us everywhere we go. Whatever your pace is, their pace is. It's, it's going to be right there with us. And so the longer we continue to ignore it, the longer it's going to be there and the longer we're going to continue to have challenges, even to the death and the detriment of the sport, if we continue to exclude people and it ends up being the death of triathlon, which I hope would never happen. But it could if we continue mm -hmm. to ignore some of these conversations and topics. Yeah, and even the ability to participate in triathlon itself is a privilege, right? Because you have to assume that there's some fundamental things you have access to and um, t time maybe is one of those things, right? Swimming pools, bikes, um, the outdoors, like there's a ton of things that not everyone has access to. And I'm, I'm thinking about now that triathlon's opening back up and we're having races, right? People might be thinking about traveling. And um, so... I'm thinking about the U.S. passport, and I know, Shawnee, you have some positions or some perspectives on the value of a U.S. passport and what that might mean for privilege, but it's making me think about growing up in the United Kingdom, being so close to um, mainland Europe, right? I always had a passport. Like, I have a passport when I was a baby, and I've never not had a passport. And, you know, because we would travel across to the the now the EU and... um you know, all of that, that's obviously going to change a little bit now with Brexit, but um, that was just never something I ever considered that why would you not have a passport? I came to the United States and was absolutely floored by how few people have passports. What I hadn't connected um, in my learning at that point was that there's also like to have a passport, the implication is you also have the resources to travel 
out of the United States, right? So I can can Mm -hmm. fly, I could fly from London to Amsterdam for like 20 bucks, right? It's just different. Um, And an internal flight here in the United States is usually several hundred dollars. Um, Easily, easily. So, you know, so I came here, I'm like, why wouldn't people have a passport? Why are they not interested in traveling? And was not thinking about kind of the classist assumptions I was making related to wealth and access, but also time, right? Like who gets to travel, right? You also can't just hop across for a weekend like I could, right? So there's a geographic component to this too, I realize. But um, now, obviously, um, I have a US passport. I mean, I also still have a UK passport, so I feel pretty blessed to have both of those. But I'm not sure if either of them... (laughs) is helpful right now. Right. There you go. Well, and you know, I haven't had my passport my entire life. In fact, I got my passport when I was uh, preparing to study abroad in my master's program. So I was actually, you know, relatively older. And so, you know, once I got my passport, I felt, okay, well, the world is my oyster here. You know, I can go anywhere. Um, Obviously, depending on money, like you just mentioned, um, I could pretty much go anywhere if I have some resources. Um, Now, what has become very real to me um, in the midst of lots that's going on in this country politically, but also um, just when I started thinking about, you know, what if there were a civil war in this country? What if there was a coup in this country or some type of upheaval in this country where I would need to flee with my family? And so that, you know, presumes a few things and it's almost a conundrum, if you will, because Uh, My family has passports, which is a blessing, but on the other hand, too, we're in the middle of, still in the middle of a global pandemic, and at this point, Americans are not smiled upon when it comes to where we're stationed in this pandemic, and so given that, yeah, my family does have passports, but would we be accepted anywhere? Would we be able to go anywhere? I'm not so sure. I need to pull out a few maps here to see. I feel like Wolf Blitzer, you know, I need to pull out a few magic maps to, you know, highlight which countries I could actually go to with my family and which ones I couldn't. Um, But it's very real that a passport, a U.S. passport right now may have lesser value because we have a pandemic going on. And I don't blame countries for saying, hey, I don't know about allowing Americans in because when, you know, with the media, the numbers and so forth of, you know, those that have had uh, COVID-19, well, hey, they don't know if I'm one of them or not. They don't know if I've had it previously or not. We don't know how the, the virus is really responding and if people can have it more than once, for example. And so all these uh, medical things that Dr. Fauci could probably tell us about, um, the challenge becomes where can we go? And so now I feel like contrary to many years of previously having a U.S. passport, I, I feel it's valuable, but I definitely don't feel as if it's as valuable as it has been in past years. And so, you know, it's something to really think about and consider when we don't have the type of mobility that we once had. Um, I, I feel like um, someone who has had a privilege for quite a while and now it's been taken away. No, I'm not saying yeah. that um, it feels, it feels as if it's unfair, but Um, from my value set, but from logic, it tells me it's very fair because science is science. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, given that, you know, we just have to be aware. Yeah. And how, how many people just have not historically been able to travel freely. Right. And when they have been, um, 
leaving their home country, perhaps they've been leaving their home country because of disaster, because of violence, um, because of fear, um, and how they're treated when they arrive in a new country, right? And so there's a little bit of irony there, perhaps, in terms yeah, of um, US citizens perhaps feeling similarly about, well, we're not welcome anywhere else now. Like if I show up, I can't fly back to the UK right now. I mean, I could, I suppose, right. but I would have to quarantine right. and I don't have Absolutely. that kind of time, right? So yeah, so I think that's such a really interesting point. And it speaks to your comment at the beginning of this discussion around context and how privilege and context are really important and how things change. And so my, you know, my context yeah. right now is that um, I have privilege in particular areas, right? But if I go elsewhere, a different country, a different time frame, right? Then um, that might look very different. Absolutely. You know, context changes everything. You know, it really changes everything. Um, and so, you know, given that, I, I would have never thought that the value of a U.S. passport would plummet within a few months' time. Um, but it has. And so it makes you really reconsider, you know, what you have the freedom to do. And I feel very blessed and fortunate that, like you were mentioning before, money actually isn't that big of an issue. You know, if, if you and I woke up tomorrow and said, Lisa, let's meet in the U.K., money wouldn't necessarily be the issue. It would be the acceptance of us from the United States that would probably be the issue that um, would be the priority even over socioeconomic status, race, gender. That would be the one um, privilege that we no longer have. And so, you know, the context changed all of that for us. Yeah, and I do think, you know, when we think about triathlon, we think about endurance sports as a race director, as a coach, as an industry professional, you know, you have the opportunity to change the context, right? Like, so, um, you know, you're, you have a yeah, work, you yeah. have a workplace, right? Your triathlon organization has a workplace, maybe you're a retailer or you sell a product of some kind. Um, and you know, you're perpetually making assumptions about your staff's sexual orientation, right? So maybe you assume that everyone's heterosexual and you are um, not thinking about that that might not be the case. And so maybe you have a staff member who's a member of the LGBT community and starts to feel like it's not welcome for them. So that context then becomes really challenging because you as the owner are assuming heterosexuality, which is a privilege, right? And you're creating an exclusive place for your employee. So you can shift the context, right? By simply not making assumptions that your um, male staff have women partners and your women staff have male partners. And also, you know, we can go further around gender identity, not even assuming someone's gender identity by how you're reading their expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would change the context, right? So that wouldn't necessarily mean that the privilege of heterosexuality goes away in kind of like this global um, sense. But in your purview, in your sphere of control, you shift the context and you cease to privilege heterosexuality by making assumptions, which in turn creates a more inclusive mm. work environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, all right, so let's take that to where we need to go here. Um, that just as 
quickly as the context changed here in the U.S., especially related to, you know, the power of the passport, if you will, um, even the power of the P word, the privilege that we thought we had, just as quickly as the, con the context can change negatively, it can also change positively in a way that um, equity, redistribution of power. How is power literally redistributed in ways that more people have access to it in order for us to get more, um, get to an end result? So, um, Lisa, I don't know if you've seen that more recent graphic of the difference between equality and equity. It used to be the one where you had like the three figures that are trying to watch the baseball game over the fence. And um, there were several different mm -hmm. uh, quadrants of that where, um, you know, they couldn't see and then they moved the boxes around to stand up on them and they still relatively couldn't see and then um, eventually we get to a place where we completely dismantle the entire fence that was preventing right. everyone from seeing, right? Well, there's another one that's on a bicycle. And that's my favorite one. Of course, I always think about triathlon. Um, but the top layer is equality and the bottom layer is equity. The top layer is a bunch of differently sized individuals, differently abled individuals, and they all are given the very same bike. And we all know if we are listening to this podcast and we have done even one triathlon or one bike race, we know that a half a centimeter can completely obliterate a fit on a bike. So imagine being on a bike that does not fit you. And that's what happens when everyone gets the same damn bike. It doesn't fit. People are uncomfortable. We don't get to the end result of finishing a race relatively comfortably. We don't meet the end, the end game versus mm -hmm. the bike that is fit specifically for you. So whether you're a hand cyclist and you need one of the hand cyclist bikes, mm -hmm. or if you're someone who like me who needs a 51 inch or whatever uh, you might need, I'm imagining someone who's 6'5 trying to ride my 51 inch. They're going to be hurting. Mm -hmm. A mile into it, they're going to be hurting. And so given that, what can we do to create this equity piece where we all get to that end result. In fact, more of us get to the end result because we have what need, what we need. And because we have what we need, we have the right fit to get us to the end, to get us mm -hmm. to that finish line. If we all have what we need, then we all can do it. It's not a matter of necessarily, you know, someone being privileged over another, but do you have exactly what you need to make it to the finish? I don't care if you're on a unicycle. If, as long as it's within the rules and the requirements, how can we all get to the finish? And so, you know, I think, again, we need to think about the system. So, you know, thinking about the system of how can we find bikes that fit, it, both literally and figuratively? How, do, how can we find bikes that fit so that we all get to that goal of getting to the finish of whatever that may be, whether it's your first triathlon, whether it's your 50th triathlon, whether... Um, you just want to do something because it makes you feel mm -hmm. like you belong. What can you do to get on the right fit bike? And I also think um, you mentioned rules and regulations and being on a unicycle, right? But I, I also think the rules and regulations are part of a system because who's, oh, goodness, ri yes. <laughs> who's writing the rules and regulations. And so what um, assumptions are being baked into those rules and regulations that then essentially disadvantage people who don't share the identity of the rule makers. And it made me think of um, years ago, I was at a um, inclusion presentation by a woman named Jamie Morgan. She's a diversity educator and she shared this story. It's a fictional story of um, mm -hmm a giraffe who is an architect and, and, a, and a hippo that hires the giraffe to build a house for them. 
And um, so the giraffe ends up constructing this house, building this house. And then, you know, the hippo rolls up to the door and um, can't get in because the giraffe with its long neck and narrow body has built the doorway to accommodate the giraffe, Mm. not the hippo. Right. Wow. And mm-hmm. there's more, there's more to it. It's much more elaborate than that. And she did a great right, job, right. but essentially, right. Like the rule makers are making, they're building the house based on specifications that work for them. And some of that's unconscious. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then you mm-hmm. have people who are lining up, but they can't get in. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, and that's the thing is, you know, circling back to your point around universal design, you know, how can we create spaces that, accommodate everyone as many as possible. Um, I remember I went up to um, Ohio State last spring or a couple of springs ago um, and I was going there for a very nerdy course design program where basically professors were learning how to design their courses better uh, both online and in person. And so I went there and it just happened to be that the last room that was left uh, was um, considered a wheelchair accessible room. And I so appreciated um, being in that room in particular. I, at first, I felt some kind of way about it because I felt like, well, what if someone arrives that really needs this room? I don't really need this room, but okay. Um, but I really appreciated being in that room because it, it gave me an opportunity to pay attention to the nuances of what would be needed um, if I didn't have the, all, all the privileges that I do have as an able-bodied person. So, you know, alarm clocks that blink so that if I could not hear it, I could see it. Um, or the bed that vibrates to wake me up in case I can't hear an alarm clock. Um, or the uh, restrooms that are wheelchair accessible. So the, the frames of the door, like you were mentioning, were twice as wide. Um, things like that, or even uh, the bathroom sinks that were a little bit higher so that if I were in a wheelchair that my wheelchair could fit underneath so that I could wash my hands, for example. And so all these things that were going on in this room, I was grateful to see it for myself. Um, but I was also thinking to myself, well, why can't all rooms be fitted this way like why does it have to be just two rooms on the top floor that a couple people if you're lucky get the room then this would be great for everyone so why Mm -hmm. would we not have this for everyone and so you know just a thought around that universal universally designed race or universally designed training or whatever it may be I think it's important to think through that prism and continue Mm -hmm. to think that way uh, in endurance sports but I love your analogy I I, I won't forget the giraffe I I won't forget that (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I think these stories are just so helpful for, for us to understand how privilege manifests right because we aren't thinking about it. Each of us are not thinking about the ways in which we're benefiting from these systems that have been built by people like us. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and so we have this collection of identities that both gives us a, a foot up and also helps us, um, or doesn't help us, pushes us down. Right. And yeah, um, yeah. there's a, there's a constant struggle there and I think for folks who have privilege in certain spaces, it's really important to think critically about the ways in which you benefit. Um, you know, and if you don't like the word privilege, um, call it something else. Um, social advantage, head start, yeah, step yeah, up, yeah, for sure. You know, mm-hmm. and it it is the system. It is the system. Um, I mean, this system also sounds a bit nebulous, but you know, like 
transportation, housing, employment, they're all built for temporarily able-bodied people. That's right. right. That's right. So mm-hmm. when we say system, that's what we mean, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, education yeah. until recently is um, designed, it's been predicated on kids all learning the same way, right? That's how it was built. That's right. That's right. You exactly. Know? So that's exactly. the system. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the system. Well, and you're reminding me, I, I love your giraffe analogy, so now I won't forget it. Um, you're also reminding me, too, of this meme that I saw a few weeks ago. Anyone who follows my social media knows that I love memes. Um, but this one in particular was a test. And the test was, the, the proctor of the test that was giving the test said, I want you to climb up that tree. And the four individuals that were taking the test were a monkey, a horse, a fish, and a pig. And the test was created for only one of them to actually be able to accomplish it. And you're reminding me of that meme. Mm -hmm. Of course, a fish would not be able to climb a tree. I mean, I'm not a zoologist or a biologist, but I'm imagining we haven't necessarily found that species yet. Uh, but, But to my point, to keep it very simple, is that, you know, you're right. You know, there are systems created and, and I would suggest that every race is truly a test of what you can accomplish. And some tests have been written in ways that benefit one group and yes, don't benefit many other groups. And mm-hmm. so I feel like we're all at that starting line looking at that tree like, uh, that tree wasn't necessarily built for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so where, where's the test? And, and, and we're not asking for an easier test. Um, we're not asking. In, in fact, I would imagine that some of the tests are even more difficult, but um, it's not asking for sympathy or for an easier test. It's just asking for the test to be fit for more people, not just some people. And that's mm-hmm. the, the, the challenge, the core challenge to what it means to really think about privilege and how to break down that privilege in ways that uh, redistributes power in these yeah. systems. You know, that really irks me when people say that an accommodation <laughs> or a change that expands the reach of something or creates equity is easier or you're cheating or that's not fair, right? And it's almost always from people who benefit from the current system, who believe that that current system they're entitled to and that to yes. expand or yes, to yes, expand yes. the system, break down the system in mm-hmm. some way is taking something away from them, which was never yours to begin with, right? So oh, yes. we have to think about with triathlon, right? Yeah, like it's built for a certain type of person, Um it oh, isn't, sure. it isn't built with universal design in mind. So you're right, Shauna, like people who are going to be successful in that particular quote unquote test, um, are going, <laughs> is a certain kind of person and it just reproduces itself. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. It's that, um, I hope I'm using it correctly. It's been a long time, uh, meritocracy mm-hmm. where we continue to see ourselves in the people that we continue to invite. So we continue to reproduce it. We continue to reproduce the same thing. So, oh, I see people around me who look exactly like me are at the same fitness level as me. And so we continue to be successful. And so I'm going to continue to um, invite and attract people who look like me and have the same uh, ability as myself, Mm -hmm. rather than thinking differently. Um, One of the things I do in trainings often when we're thinking about hiring processes is to stop using the language of fit you know, who fits in here, who should we hire, et cetera. Um, But instead, who adds, who adds 
to our environment. And I think that's something we really need to consider as we construct this universal design triathlon, who adds to our environment? Yes, they may be different. Yes, they may have a different experience, but how do they add to the livelihood of triathlon? I, I think that's increasingly important to see more faces that are unlike our own in order to continue to mm -hmm. expand triathlon. Even if you're selfish and you're just looking at a business model of how do we make sure that triathlon lives, <laughs> you would still look towards privilege and how we can continue to break it down so that we can open the door a little bit wider. Yeah, it's a reconstruction that needs to happen. And you make me think of the Wells Fargo guy that there was a big whole thing around this about yes. a week ago, right? Wasn't he yes. quoted yes. as saying something like, there just yes. aren't any qualified black candidates? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Um, that's not true, right? You're just not <laughs> trying hard enough and you're just not looking in the that. places where qualified black candidates are like a dime a dozen. Um, oh, Lisa, I think we're going into like the very next podcast here because that is so juicy uh, when we think about it. But but you're right. I, yes, the what he said was there's not enough black folks that are qualified for this particular role. And yes, you're exactly right. No, that's not true. But let's say it was true. It's still not okay to say that we're going to continue to mm -hmm. recruit and attract the same meritocracy, the same people that we've always had, the answer then would be, how do we build a pipeline of people that right. don't look like us, who are of certain backgrounds and perspectives that do add to what we have as a context as well as Fargo and move from there. So even if it was true, it still was a bad answer <laughs> mm -hmm. because it was like, um, no, there's not many out there, period, at the, end, at the end of the sentence and move on. And I'm like, whoa, 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 that sentence needs to be expanded so that we can start to build pipelines for folks. And I think that's what should happen in triathlon too is yes, there are folks out there that should be invited and attracted to triathlon. Um, but even if there are folks that have never done triathlon before, but they would consider endurance sports, how do we build that pipeline? It's not okay mm -hmm. to say they're not out there. It, what is okay is to say, I think they're out there. Let's go find them. And even if we don't find them, let's, grow them <laughs> let's right. um, attract them let's how do we get into youth endurance sports all the things um but it's not okay to just put the period at the center right. of our hands and walk away yeah privileged people you need to try harder right the onus is on you i think <laughs> right like right um and I'm thinking about this meritocracy and then I'm thinking about meritocracy and then the pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and they're like um mutually self um feeding cycles right yeah. like they're working yeah. kind of in tandem together that i'm i think that triathlon or sport is a meritocracy that if you try hard enough that you can do it it's the great equalizer blah 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 but it really isn't because the system is rigged and so only a certain number of people or a certain type of person gets through to participate and succeed in triathlon on the whole and so you've got these two kind of things happening in tandem that are keeping the status quo in place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you and I could probably go on about this for a long time and maybe, maybe we should think about wrapping up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we, clearly we have lots of juicy stuff to talk about next time, but I think we've given you um, what uh, primer number one on, on P is for privilege, not just for podium, if you will. Um, but yeah, there, I, I think privilege is going to, rear its ugly head throughout many podcasts moving forward, Lisa, because mm -hmm. I think it is actually the underbelly of lots of identity groups that we'll end up talking about moving forward in triathlon. Yeah, right on. 
All right. This is great, Shona. Thanks so much again. Awesome. Awesome. I'm looking forward to the next one. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>